Before we start the show, I need to alert you, but specifically a segment of you who I know are theme park fans. <laughs> I'm talking to all of you roller coaster obsessives, all you carnival loving, thrill seeking weirdos, but there's a podcast just for you. It's not this one, but it is a podcast on the Forever Dog Network called Podcast The Ride. If you're a big fan of Disney World, Universal Studios, or Six Flags, and I am a big fan of Disneyland and Disney World, people are always surprised to hear that. I don't, even people who I don't know, like podcast listeners, my voice doesn't sound like the voice of someone who loves Disneyland, but it, I really love Disneyland. Um, so I'm going to be listening to podcast The Ride as soon as I'm able. Here's what it is. The three hosts are theme park know-it-alls who do an incredible, they do these incredible deep dives on your favorite rides and parks with your favorite comedians like Jeff Garland, Paul Shear, John Daly, the, your three favorite comedians, <laughs> and others. So not just those three. Don't miss their sure-to-be-legendary 19-episode-long exploration of Hollywood's Universal City Walk starting on September 14th and running through October 3rd, Podcast The Ride, is hilarious, nostalgic, full of heart, and full of the roller coaster insight you didn't even know you needed in your life. I actually did know I needed this. I can't wait to hear this. These guys are seriously funny, but they also, they love theme parks and they know their stuff. Uh, it's a fun, I'll say it, ride. Podcast The Ride, you can subscribe right now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Play the Forever Dog Jingle. Is it a jingle? Yeah. What would you call it? Bumper? A sting. Bumper. A sting. Yeah. Play the sting. Forever. Dogs. For today's episode, we have a terrific lineup, including Chris Collins, who got his start on The Wire and is currently working on the John Wick Universe TV show, which we talk a lot about, as well as Meredith Averill, who has worked on a ton of great shows, including The Good Wife and uh, the upcoming Haunting of Hill House, as well as the upcoming Lock and Key, which we also talk a lot about. And our old friend, Sarah Gertrude Shapiro, the creator of Unreal, who we last talked to right before Unreal premiered. I think uh, she was just getting ready to run this show. Uh, so now it has been four seasons, and she's just wrapping up the show. So we talked to Sarah about her journey on Unreal. Before all of that, we have a brief chat with our old pal, Julie Pleck. Julie is the creator of The Vampire Diaries and its spinoff, The Originals and Legacies, which is coming this fall. Um, these are all in the Vampire Diaries universe, and we talk about that. Uh, we talk with Julie about the rules of magic and how difficult that can be. But Julie is, uh, she loves this supernatural stuff, as you know from her shows. Um, and so it's a really fun conversation, which we lean heavily in talking about witches. Enjoy. <laughs> You have worked in the supernatural on TV, and I assume in your own life as well. Um, <laughs> I doubt. <laughs> yeah, you, you, seem, you seem a witchy type. Um, but I wanted to ask you specifically, so you're the creator of The Vampire Diaries, the originals, um, and this new show, Legacies. Uh, both of originals uh, and Legacies are both spinoffs of Vampire Diaries. So you've, you've created this huge tapestry of the supernatural. And the thing I wanted to at least start talking to you about is creating the rules for that world. 
you know, that seems to me the hardest part of creating a magic world is giving it parameters. It's absolutely the hardest part and ultimately is, in a weird way, sort of an unachievable aspiration. Interesting. Um, (laughs) How so? Because ultimately, well, you know, the the rules kind of shift and meld according to the need in the episode, you know? And I think when we, when we started with vampire diaries, we said we need to feel like the magic is grounded in some kind of earth based science. Mm-hmm. Um, but mind you, this was after in the pilot episode, Damon Salvatore could control a cr- fog with his mind <laughs> and, and be embodied in the, you know, be inside the body of a crow. So (laughs) essentially (laughs) we wrote a pilot borrowing liberally, you know, from the book itself and some great moments from the book that we were adapting it from. And then we had to kind of dial it all the way back. Mm -hmm. Um, And and to me, writing magic in the supernatural shows like this is really about, it's about creating as many restrictions for yourself so that the magic isn't the ultimate solve to every problem yeah. because by definition, when you have a witch on the show or you have somebody that can do magic, then the magic is always the solution. Yeah. And if you don't have a crystal clear set of rules or restrictions, then, Oh, you have a problem. Have the witch fix it. Mm-hmm. You've got someone who needs to save the day, bring the witch in. And, and the witch is ultimately uh, almost infallible in their ability to, to go to battle and, and to win the war. And, and that makes for sort of some great sequences, but ultimately uh, it kind of zaps the conflict out yeah. and it, and it makes plotting really difficult because you can't just plot like you normally would in character stuff where you really want all your characters to sort of equally be feeling the conflict of the scene and equally participating in the, in the solution to the problem, because you can just have someone come do a Shazam, you know, (laughs) abacadabra kind of, kind of fix and, and the story's over. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time first saying, okay, well, our witch, um, is new. She's just discovering she's a witch. So she has no idea what she's capable of. And, and so we got to have a lot of fun with early witchy stuff, you know, like <laughs> as, as she awakens to her abilities, but like, honest God, if not by season three, she's like making the rain and tornadoes and lightning, you know, and I'm being hyperbolic, but it really does escalate so much. Um, because I can, you can justify anything. You can say, oh, well, she's able to manipulate electricity. Then, of course, she could bring a lightning bolt down from the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you've, you've topped yourself to a point where you can't, you know, we have to create hurdles to then diminish her powers. Like Bonnie Bennett on The Vampire Diaries lost her magic mm-hmm. more times than I can count <laughs> uh, for all those reasons. Like yeah. We needed to, like, rein ourselves in. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm curious too about the conversations um, about like differentiating the magic. Right, you you enter Vampire Diaries, and this is a show about vampires. It's based on the book, which is about these this vampire love triangle. Um, but then you introduce these other characters. Did you have to say these are vampire magics? These are witch magics, and how were they different to each other? Um, yeah, oh gosh, it's so funny because we. 
always said as we were saying, well, what are the limitations of our witch abilities? And as I said, trying to ground stuff in 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 basic science. Mm-hmm. Then we found ourselves saying, well, how in the hell do you explain vampires? Yeah. Vampires that can go at super speed and do mind control and <laughs> get inside your head and psychically fuck with you. You know, like, how do we explain vampires in this world where we're trying to be simple with our magic? And that is what I mean by it being impossible to create rules. Because <laughs> when, you're, when you're doing your witch world build and you're trying to keep that con- con- contained then you realize inherently in the premise of your show, you're already so ridiculous. It's just in the existence of vampires and werewolves. Are you kidding? Werewolves are shapeshifters, right? (laughs) Werewolves are shapeshifters. So what we did and, and what was fun weirdly and got us into all kinds of story trouble along the way, but we said, okay, well, how do you explain vampires? And so from that we said, well, let's explain the origin of the vampire. And in season three, we told a story about, how the first vampires were created and it was a spell gone wrong basically by a witch and that was the birth of the original vampires which was our original family which Hmm. then spawned its own spin-off for five years so uh, by needing to understand and say okay well here's in our world here's how this stuff happens it actually spawned a lot of uh of ancillary storytelling yeah that's really cool was there it's interesting to me that you got away uh, with not telling that story for three seasons, was there push from uh, the network, from studio, from anyone other than the writers themselves to try to give that origin story sooner? No, there really wasn't. And I don't think anybody would have, I don't think it ever would have occurred to anybody to say, why don't you tell the vampire origin story? I think for us, it was because the question came up and we were like, oh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> how do you explain all this in, in, in our world of magic that we wanted to tell that story? I think that the vampire mythology throughout history of literature and early cinema and folklore and all that is just so universally and intimately understood mm-hmm. uh, and everybody always usually plays in the same sandbox, you know, of, of rules, what a vampire can do and, you know, and, and, and what defines that creature. And so I, and most people don't really <laughs> spend a lot of time thinking, hmm, wait a second, how did this, how did this all come to pass? Yeah, that's true. And, and I think, and this is a conversation I've had to have with people as I write witches too, is witches don't have that sort of common lore. You know, there are certain tropes that we know, which are, you know, the cauldrons and the pointy hat and some earthy stuff. But mostly you're finding your your play on witches. So how do you remember those conversations when you started to introduce that kind of character? Yeah, well, we so we really liked we liked to delineate the kind of magic that our witches were practicing, and so in the early seasons we had what we called spirit magic, which eventually we were able to explain by saying that witches actually, when they died, went to the other side, which is the place where they're still sort of in existence, and so a. a a witch on, uh, you know, in our plane is pulling from the spirit magic of her ancestors. And they're all linked, you know, throughout time. That's great. Um, 
and, and ancestral magic as well. So we have ancestral magic and spirit magic, and then we say earth magic. And earth magic was always when our witches were kind of, you know, at the at the lower end of their limitations and their powers. They could always pull from the earth, and that's hmm. in herbs, and you know, the basic like sort of um, day-to-day contemporary witch idea that a little a little herb here, a little spell there, and you can make things float. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's and then awesome. and then we like to say, okay, well, so where does the magic go wrong? And then we we got into dark magic, um, which is you know the equivalent of ultimately black magic, which is pulling from a much uglier place. And and so we we like to have a whole escalation of a witch that goes down a wrong path and ends up indulging in dark magic and all the consequences that come as a result of that. And you know that that never ended well for anybody. <laughs> Uh, that's really interesting stuff. I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the writer's room as you were oh, working yeah. this stuff I mean, this out. Is, interestingly enough, this is, I mean, this is over years, you know, so of it's course. like we never, and to circle back to your original question, we never sat down and said, okay, we're world building here. What are the long, you know, the six year, six year plan, what's the six year structure for how we're going to create our witch rules mm-hmm. um, ultimately because when you're launching a show and you've got vampires and werewolves and witches and about six weeks when from <laughs> the time you're picked up to the time you're shooting your first episode and then 22 episodes after that um you you're, you're trying to figure out how your characters talk uh and that takes a right. lot of time, <laughs> much less than you, you thought you kind of figure out the rules along the way and you know obviously in in a perfect world you have all the time you'd ever want to do full like carefully constructed world build but tv just doesn't work that way i don't mean to seem like you know critical of the process but no, it really it's, it's a moving you know, train we talk about that all the yeah. time uh absolutely yeah. Let me, so yeah, uh, so you are kind of doing it. Uh, you're, you're making a lot of it up as you go along, and then you spend a lot of time really trying to make sure that you've grounded it in something that you can believe in or that you can defend, and that is whether it's it, you know it's an emotional reality or a physics reality or scientific reality. Just because ultimately, if it gets out of control, especially early on, you've you've completely. Um, You've 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 damaged your own ability to tell good stories because yeah. the magic is just too much and too big. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense, and it's a great thing to keep in mind as people have a lot more time to work on their original pilots. That right, you can start to build the stuff in so you don't get trapped. Uh, yeah. Julie, let me end by asking you: Who are some of your favorite pop culture witches? <laughs> well, I mean, you can't have a conversation about witches without talking about Willow. Agreed. Uh, for Buffy, because you know, I mean, she was, she was just again going back to me talking about the escalation of, of use of witchcraft. She was somebody that dabbled and then grew and then became incredibly strong and then got herself caught up in the side of magic that's addictive and destructive and it literally made her evil um and she had to break from it recover from it and then you've got a beautiful sobriety metaphor out of the whole thing and yeah. i just thought you know she was such a wonderful character and witchcraft was used incredibly well on buffy yeah they really as with everything they always leaned into the metaphor and made it work for the characters it's uh, it's something it's a great lesson i think yeah, but you know what's so funny is when you're talking about the way that you can accidentally hamper yourself. So when they did Secret Circle, mm-hmm. I think Kevin and Andrew really wanted 
to make it difficult for the witches to be able to do spells so it wasn't so easy as just snap your fingers and 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 you can do anything wrinkle your nose and so they made a rule where the witches there had to be a certain amount of witches in order to oh, you know nice. to do the spell which is a great idea until you realize <laughs> every scene you're shooting has six people in it. <laughs> sure. Shooting six people is like shooting a dinner party scene. It take it can take two days to get through one of those. So you've got one page worth of incident with six people in it. It's taking you hours, and you can't sustain that on a TV schedule at the level you know money what that we're spending and the time that we have. So like their choice to ground it in something with consequences actually screwed them uh, in the logistics. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. I never thought we'll have to talk to Andrew about that. That's yeah, really great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what are, what are you working on now? Is there anything you can tell us about? Well, um, as you mentioned, thank you for asking. <laughs> I am working on the third uh, installment of the TVD universe. <laughs> that I will uh, sort of half ironically call it. Um, which is called Legacies, and it's the sort of next generation vampire diaries uh, set in the Salvatore boarding school for the young and gifted. That's so and, cool. And uh, I call it my love letter to um, Harry Potter Absolutely. and Buffy, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And then uh, it's this winter, we will be re- bringing Roswell, New Mexico to the big the big screen, the small screen. <laughs> back uh, to the small to your screen. your telephones everywhere. Yeah, it's back <laughs> to the small screen, which I'm really excited about. That uh, starts shooting in a few weeks in Santa Fe, and it's going to be beautiful. And are, are you directing that? I directed the pilot, and oh, then okay. I'll, I'll go back and probably direct an episode this season. That's so cool. But, uh, Karina McKenzie, who uh, yeah. was a writer on the originals for the entirety of the run, it's her first show, her first pilot ever, and she's you know jumping into the deep end, and she's going to be great. Oh, it's so exciting. Well, congrats on all that stuff. We look forward to it, and we'll definitely talk again soon. Thanks for chatting, Julie. Yeah, no, thanks so much. Take care. <laughs> Uh, now is the time for you to call up your local comic book shop and pre-order The Only Thing I Care About, my new Vertigo comic called Hex Wives. It's about witches, and it's about gender politics. Does that sound fun? Probably not, but it is. The artist is amazing. The colorist is amazing. The editors are unbelievable. Uh, I'm just hanging on for dear life and hoping that people buy this so I can tell dozens and dozens of stories in this world. So please... Call up your local comic book shop. If you don't know where it is, go to comicshoplocator.com, put in your zip code, and uh, order that comic, Hexwives. It comes out on Halloween. You just tell them you want it, they'll hold a copy for you, and then you go to the store and buy it. It's easy. It's like $4. And I think you're going to like it. I do. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in time to tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. I'm Meredith Averill. Uh, I've written for a bunch of short-lived shows you probably didn't watch, and then some maybe you did, uh, like The Good Wife and Jane the Virgin. I created a show for the CW called Starcrossed, and am currently co-running a show for Netflix called Lock and Key, based on a graphic novel series. Thanks, and we'll we'll talk about all of it, all the good stuff. Chris. Hi, uh, Chris Collins. Uh, I got my start on a show called The Wire. Uh, I wrote for that for the last two seasons. And then um, some other shows you might have heard of are Sons of Anarchy. I was a executive producer on there. And um, and Man on the High Castle. 
currently uh, developing a show called The Continental based on the John Wick films. Um, I'm doing, uh, I wrote a couple drafts of John Wick 3 and I'm creating a TV show to live alongside of it. So that's where I am. That's Sony. And I want to get into that stuff because it feels like uh, an interesting juggling act that hasn't been done very much until recently. Yeah, they're, they're doing it a lot now. Yeah. So I want to hear about the mechanics of that. Uh, and we're welcoming back uh, Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, for sure. I think the last time I saw you was at South Bay Southwest. I think when right we, before the show started. <laughs> yeah, when we were about to premiere Unreal. Um, my name is Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. I'm the co-creator of a show called Unreal. We just wrapped up series finale after four seasons. Um, and I just wrapped up an overall deal at A&E. And I'm out on the town for the first time ever. And, <laughs> That's um, true, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Um, uh, and I will say, let me interrupt for a sec, but yeah. like for people who don't know the backstory, they should go listen to that old episode that we did at South by Southwest, where you talked about basically doing this short film yep. that became Unreal, and you hadn't written narrative TV before. I had not. Yeah, <laughs> which now I have. Now you've done four seasons. Yes, I have. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of pros and cons to that, I gotta say. Um, <laughs> now now that I know what I know. Um, but what else? Oh, I have a feature that I'm doing with Amazon right now. I'm just We're just finishing up a second draft and pretty excited about it. It's sort of like a lighthearted comedy about ISIS. <laughs> but not actually. No. Um, no. But no, it's this a, is about the, the this female army, right? Yes. That was fighting against ISIS. Yeah, it's, really sort of, it's a pretty heightened take on it, though, for me. It's a little bit like um, part of my pitch was that I didn't want to make a depressing foreign film nobody wanted to see. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to make like a very watchable, pretty poppy story loosely based on um, a battalion of sex slaves who escaped and took up arms to go back and kill their rapists. Yes, I remember the story. That's a fascinating story. Yeah. So it's been a really interesting combination of doing pretty hardcore research in the Middle East and then having to just sort of turn it into its own thing. I bet. Good. We'll talk about that yeah. um, as well as awesome. wrapping up Unreal. But I want to start uh, easy for you guys. <laughs> um, I'd like to hear about the... We usually talk about breaking in, but honestly, I'm a little tired of talking about breaking in because nobody's stories are the same. They're sort of not replicable. Uh, we can take some lessons to them, but also I'm we're at 400 episodes here. Guys, there's a back catalog. <laughs> uh, what I do want to hear about is the first writing that you got paid for. Um, what was the thing that sort of started to bridge that gap between being an amateur and a professional? And I'll, anyone who wants to jump in on that to get us started. Okay. Um, I had a pretty traditional way in. Uh, I came in as a script coordinator mm-hmm. on uh, The Wire. Okay. Now on that, you know, on that job, I was basically I, I was told outright that you know if I wanted to be a writer, I was on the wrong show. Really? And, uh, yeah, I was never going to be a writer on the wire, and um, you know, I think at that point the show was kind of reached its halfway point, and he kind of David knew what he was going to do, mm-hmm. and he um, had a stable of writers. Yeah, and we're he not had going his, anywhere. Yeah, and you know, I didn't really fit fit that room, uh, you know. So, uh, <laughs> well, anyway, uh, in the middle of the, the third season of the Wire, uh, I had a producer George Pelicanos come in and and into my office and he said, you're ready, right? And I said, ready for what? And he said, ready to be a writer. And I said, uh, you know, David actually told me that I would never be a writer for this show, but I'm here to learn how to write. Mm-hmm. And um, so he uh, he got me in the room. He got oh, me invited into the room. And then uh, George asked me to uh, write some scenes for the show, all the voices, turn them in. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And um, on my last day of work, 
you know, I turned him in about two to, two months before my last day of work, and uh, I'd never heard it back from David on it. And um, and on my last day, he called me into his office, and he had my scene spread out, and he picked one up and said I would have flown this as is, <laughs> and invited me back as a writer. That's really interesting. Yeah, and then uh, and then at the end of season four, I was a staff writer. Season four, I was mm-hmm. responsible for a character called Bubbles. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you created bubbles? No, no I wish I did. <laughs> but uh, but I, I was responsible for writing his storyline uh, for the whole season. So what that allowed me to do was collaborate directly with all the writers on the wire, write my scenes. I handed in to them. They'd hand them in to David, and uh, and that was that was sort of the process. And uh, after the end of season four, he cut the room in half and uh, invited hmm. me back for. Uh, season five. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm curious, yeah. is that the way The Wire was written? Is people sort of took characters and followed those storylines? Mm, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, it was, you know, he he um, had specific writers for different worlds, like the mm-hmm. political world. Bill Zorzi was the editor. He was, I, I believe he was one of uh, David Simon's editors at the Baltimore mm-hmm. Sun. So mm-hmm. we had a very heavy political storyline uh, mm-hmm. for the back half of the right. series. And uh, Bill came in and kind of worked on that. Um, but for me as a staff writer, I wasn't getting a script as a staff writer. Right. So oh, what he sense. did, I think in lieu of that was offer me a storyline and let's see how you craft this and let's hmm. see how you do with that. And then at the end that got me, I think to the next season where, oh, I, did, where I actually did get a script. Right. So, okay. Um, yeah. what kind of stuff just to backtrack for a sec, what were you working on on your own? Uh, and you know, but okay. you knew you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, so that's a, that's another thing. Uh, I wasn't someone that grew up saying I was going to be a writer. That mm-hmm. was probably the last thing that occurred to me. And uh, so I grew up wanting to be an archaeologist. That's what I went to school for. That's what I did. Really? I worked as a contract archaeologist. I also loved music. So um, I booked music at a small venue at University of Maryland. Then I got hired by the, one of the top promoters in North America out of college. And I, I promoted over 700 concerts for him. And then once that kind of sort of sort of got watered down mm-hmm. uh, with time and, and the amount of shows I've seen, uh, I was looking for something else and I came out that way. And uh, then I decided uh, I was gonna get into this business. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I got a temp job at HBO. Uh, and then, you know, and then that led to, you know, assistant job and that led to me meeting people. And, and allowing people to get to know me and advocate for me. So that's those are how the doors open. So then when did writing become part of even the way of thinking you wanted to be? Oh, uh, so I had a, I, I decided I wanted to produce. Okay. And so HBO sent me uh, to UCLA for producing program. They paid for it. And um, so I pitched a, a feature idea I had to a friend of mine's father, who's a novelist, prolific novelist. And uh, he offered to write me a first draft of the idea and uh, I got it and uh, I rewrote it sent it back to him he rewrote me sent it back to me we did five drafts and then uh, and then he encouraged me to keep writing because he runs a boot camp for writers and then that's a that's the script I turned in to the wire because uh, I think David really just wanted to know that I actually wrote a script <laughs> that's really interesting. yeah so that's, uh, that's I you know I I you know, I won the lotto. You know, I was the right place, right time, knew the right people. You know, had some skills that well, I was able to to 
to develop. Yeah, I mean, we talk about that a lot. It's yeah. there's so much luck involved, yep. but there's also being able to back it up when the time comes. Yeah, and, I mean, you, you know, David to. Chase, because you know, I worked on The Sopranos for a minute mm-hmm. too, and uh, you know, David Chase said something in a DVD extra, I think, season one of The Sopranos, uh, where he said half of it is luck and half of it is skill, and I, I, I think he hit that right on the, on yeah. the nose. Yeah, I agree. Uh, All right. Uh, Meredith, tell us about the first thing you got paid for, the first piece of writing. Well, the first paid gig I got, I got because I asked for it, Mm -hmm. which was a good lesson in no one's going to hand anything to you. You have to go for it. And I had been working for these two guys, Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec, who co-created a show called October Road. I was their assistant. And that show got canceled, and they were brought on to run a show called Samurai Girl for ABC Family. It was like a Hmm. six-episode sort of miniseries event is what they called it. And I knew that they were staffing for it because I was listening on all, you know, you listen on all your bosses' calls. And it was very much in my wheelhouse. And they had read a pilot of mine over the year that I had worked for them. And they had liked it and they'd given me notes. So I, you know, they knew of me as a writer. And I always Mm -hmm. went out of my way to try to remind them that this is my ambition, that it wasn't just this me answering their right. calls and getting the coffee, that there was more that I wanted to do. And I tried to remind them all the time of that. I want to pause you there because yeah. this does come up a lot. And, and I think a lot of folks who are in that position of assistant or PA or whatever it is, want to know how to not just broach that conversation, but to continue having that conversation. So yeah. I know this was a while ago, but do you remember how you... I definitely definitely said it in my interview so that they understood, Mm -hmm. like, I'm not a lifer assistant, um, that I'm here to learn and I'm here to do all the things you want me to do. But I also this is a learning experience for me. And um, and then, I, you know, you also have to, like, pick and choose your moments and, like, build a relationship. Like on day two, you can't be like, hey, would you read my spec? So I waited. And then I think it was a few months into the job. Andre was like, oh, yeah, you know, if you ever, like, have anything you want us to read. And I literally was like, oh, here you go. Like, right. <laughs> it just had it with me. And you know, took their notes and kept that conversation going. And so it felt like the right time. Mm-hmm. So when I knew they were staffing on this show, I wanted to put myself up for it, but I was extremely nervous. It's hard to yeah. to do that. And I remember walking to Andre's office and like sweaty palms, like couldn't make eye contact and was like, I heard you guys are staffing for this show. I, I, I really love the pilot script. I'd really love to be considered. And he was like, yeah, we'll absolutely consider you. And I was like, cool. And I went back to my assistant desk and was like, well, I might be fired. Like, I literally was like, <laughs> I maybe I overstepped. I don't know. He certainly didn't make me feel that way, but I just, you know, you just never know. Sure. And the next day, Scott Rosenberg, who was their writing partner, uh, came into my little cubicle area and sat down and was like, so I hear you're going to write for us. I hear we have to find a replacement for you. And I was uh-huh. like, oh, my God, this that is the greatest thing like, ever. warmed my heart. Yeah. And I was like, Aw. <laughs> It was the, really the greatest. Uh, and great. so it was a, I had a similar transition to Chris as well as, you know, working for as in sort of su- somewhat supportive role and making that ease, easy transition. Not certainly easy, but right. this comfortable transition. And it was also a very small room. There was only like three writers. Mm-hmm. So it was also good, like training ground of the room so that, you know, I've certainly, I've been in a room with 10 writers and that can feel really overwhelming for a brand new writer. So it, it, it happened in this way that it was, I really wouldn't change a thing. It was just And you were given a script on I was given, I actually, it was a script and a half. Actually, I Mm co-wrote the finale as well. So yeah, it was great. 
And I imagine as their assistant, you were sort of in and out of the room so you could see the way they worked yes. with the room. Yeah, exactly. And what? we had a great rapport and they mm -hmm. became, I ended up working on the next three, their next three shows yeah. and they became my producing partners on the show that I created for the CW. So we, I didn't realize ha that yeah, so we've built this, we have this sort of great relationship that continues. So what have you... That's interesting to me, especially to stay with these yeah. folks for so long. Yeah. Uh, clearly something works. What have you learned from them and the way that they run a room that you're now, now that you're running a room, you, you use yourself? They care so much about the quality of life of the writers. Mm -hmm. And that's something that matters to me a lot. Like uh, my philosophy is that there's so much that you cannot control in this industry. Like you can't control your time slot or, you know, your premiere date or the marketing, or who's going to show up, and how many are going to show up. But you can control the stories that you tell, and the experience that people have working on your show. Mm -hmm. And so, those guys put a lot of effort into that, and I do. I tried to continue that tradition as well. And just yesterday, one of my, this is going to sound like bragging. I swear I'm not. But one of my writers was like. He was actually talking to someone else and I happened to overhear it. And he said <laughs> that when he left work on Wednesday, he couldn't wait to come back to work the next day. And that just like was everything yeah, to me. It was just amazing. the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you also mentioned that uh, so Samurai Girl was sort of in your wheelhouse. Yeah. And looking at the stuff you've worked on, I think like The Good Wife is sort of an outlier. Uh, yeah. Um, but it's a very it's a schizophrenic resume. So what between what is The Good the Wife stuff? and Jane the Virgin? It's right. just like like. <laughs> alien terrorist drama. <laughs> it's just like, what? Who is this girl? Uh, what is the stuff you're drawn to and, and sort of left to your own devices? What would you be writing? Certainly genre, mm -hmm. certainly darker genre. I think over the last two years, I've really honed in on that's where I am happiest working. Mm -hmm. um, I worked on a show called The Haunting of Hill House for Netflix um, last year. And I just found that I'm most comfortable working in, in, in that space and really happy telling those stories. And it's also what I watch at home. Mm -hmm. So as much as uh, like The Good Wife and Jane the Virgin, I learned so much at and they were sort of breath of fresh airs given what I was coming off of and what I went on to after. Um, I think that I've really honed in on the fact that like genre, more su sort of supernatural shows are what I really love. And there's also like a dearth of female voices in those spaces mm -hmm. too that I want to be part of that correction. Yeah, well, it seems like it seems like you're on your way. Thanks. So, uh, Sarah, bring us up to date. Uh, I think we talked about sort of your beginnings last time you were on the podcast, um, so we can we can touch on that. But was the short film uh, um, which Unreal was based on was that the first scripted thing you had done? Kind of, yeah. So I had um, always wanted to be a writer. I'm sort of the opposite of like when I was five years old. I was like, I am a typewriter, and I was like <laughs> dictating. You know, like I was like selling newspapers that I made like around the neighborhood. So I'd always wanted to be a writer. Um, and I had come to I interned at Killer Films in New York while I was in college. I really wanted to be an indie film. Um, I came out to LA for a while. Ended up like non consensually signing a contract in perpetuity to work on The Bachelor <laughs> by <Right>. accident because <laughs> I was a dumbass um, and I didn't read my paperwork. Um, so I had gone to get a day job while I was like pursuing other things and writing screenplays and I ended up just in like a like a K-hole for three and a half years working on The Bachelor. Um, and so to get out of my contract, I actually left the state 
Um, that was the way that I got out. So I went to Oregon and I started working in advertising up there. Right. So I had ri- I had written a bunch of little stuff, but definitely without a doubt, like the pilot for Unreal was the first time I really sat down and that was my job, yeah. you know, full time. Um, and it was crazy. It was really, really crazy. And I... Um, had a producer at the time that had wonderfully introduced me to Nina Lederman, who's mm-hmm. the exec who bought the show, and she's great. But my producer hadn't really done a lot of drama either, mm. and so she, I was just getting really terrible advice. Like, there's just like, <laughs> I sat down, I sort of knew what the show was because I had wanted to make a show when I made the short, so I had a lot of the characters figured out in the world and the tone, and it was sort of about like, how do we set up enough story to really run mm-hmm. for you know potentially five or six seasons? Like, what are the how how are we sort of going to structure this and all the act outs and all the stuff that I didn't know how to do. And, um, I was really working in like a pretty deep, tony, weird way. Cause it was a really deep, tony, weird mm-hmm. piece for me. And, um, I remember this producer telling me people are never alone on television. And I was like, I don't think that's right. <laughs> Cause I was like, I was like, my main character needs to be like in and out house, like scraping the skin off her face in a mirror. And she was like, she needs to be talking to somebody and they need to be hot. And I was like, I don't think that's the kind of show this is, but I just didn't know. You know what I mean? So we, um, And I I did a lot of sort of like trying to figure out like how to write a pilot, watching a lot of pilots. It was pretty scary, I got to say. And then when Marty came on, they brought on Marty as my co-creator, Marty Mm -hmm. Knoxon. Um, The real gift that she gave me that I will never forget is like I walked into her house. She was sitting on the floor with cookies she had just baked. (laughs) She had like two puppies she had just adopted. And she was like, what do you want to do? And it just (laughs) seemed so easy. She made it seem so easy. And she was like, you have it all in your head. You just told me the whole thing. And then she, she really helped me figure out some structure stuff. There were some big solves that she totally helped with. But I have to say, like, the majority thing that she did for me is just make it so much less scary. Yeah. Do you think because you were so green that you were just looking for that permission? No, I needed to learn too. There was stuff mm-hmm. I really didn't know, but a big sure. part of a but big that feels like that sort of nuts yes, and bolts stuff. It, it is, but like a big part of it was the panic. The panic just mm-hmm. set in because I had sold it and I knew I wanted to make it and I knew what it was, but everybody started telling me it was wrong or just having, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, and now, now what I understand about notes after four years of living in notes is that, you know, it's a conversation. It's like, it's like somebody is observing that like three people are having the same reaction. They aren't necessarily going to pitch you the solve. The solve for it to feel organic and native to the world is really going to have to come from you. And so it was like, I was, and I think I was also a total people pleaser because I had been working in advertising for a few years. So I was just like, yes, client, I can do that. Okay. On it. And then I was just like losing myself. And so Marty just like literally gave me a cookie and was kind of like, just tell me what you want to make because I feel like you know what you want to make. So that was amazing. And it's funny. I actually just got approached about a job I may do um, where I may be kind of giving that back to somebody. That's great. And it was funny because uh, when I was meeting with the execs, they asked me like, what would you offer this person? You know, she's somebody who hasn't (laughs) done TV before. I said, to be totally honest, I would just try to make it less scary. Mm -hmm. And it's like even just stripping down the board so that there aren't like scenes. So it's just characters. You know what I mean? Like it turns Mm -hmm. into math and letting it be a math problem instead of a gigantic world Mm -hmm. problem um, was really helpful. So I would say that that was definitely, you know, like I had been writing sort of my whole life. But the day that the, you know, I got commenced on the pilot of Unreal was terrifying. <laughs> sure. And now I want yeah. to sort of skip ahead yeah. to bringing this thing in for a landing. Yes. And That's a big one. on the other side now, mm-hmm. having written so many episodes, having directed episodes. Yeah. Do you feel like, like, what's the feeling coming out of it? 
Um, to be totally, I'm just gonna be totally honest. It feels like a huge relief. I feel like it was an awesome show. We had a great run. Like I can't even believe it. It exceeded all expectations for everybody involved. I feel like the thing that I might even be the most proud of is that I feel like most people that were involved in the show were in a better place. <laughs> like I feel like I feel like it was kind of important to me to like yeah. to like land it where it felt like you know what Constance's career, Constance Zimmer, who plays one of the main characters, Quinn. It ended up being a great opportunity for her. Yeah. She would say the same thing. Like she was really hesitant to be on a Lifetime show because we were, I mean, it scared her a lot to do the show. She took a huge leap of faith on me. And I'm like, she is happier in her career. I think yeah. Sherry Appleby had a great run on the show. I think she also had been in a place where she wanted a really meaty role. She feels like she's in a good place. She got to direct. Um, I feel like, you know, like Stacy got to show run. She had always wanted to do that. Like, that was great. I got to have a baby. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> Stacey show ran while I had a baby. That was awesome. Um, I just feel like, you know, the thing for me is it definitely was finite because there's a character flaw or sort of like a there's an architectural flaw to the show, which is that it's about a character who doesn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. And so there really is an end date to that. And there always has been because you can only stay with her so long if she's just saying, I hate my job. I hate my job. I'm a bad person. I hate my job. I hate my job. It's like that really worked for season one, kind of. Mm -hmm. But then we had to come up with something new for season two for Rachel, who's the main character, who's a producer trapped in a job she hates. Um, and then for season four, what Stacey and I actually figured out was I was like, I think we just have to flip it upside down. She has to be like, I'm and, and there's a really important line that she has in the first episode of season four where she says, uh, you know, I just got tired of hearing myself talk. And she's like, I'm tired of being a feminist. I'm tired of complaining. I'm all in. I got highlights. I got a push up bra. I'm like ready to rock. I'm going to get a ring on it. I want to marry one of these dudes. Like she's just so it felt to me that like we needed to stick the landing and we needed to stick it now. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I had, sometimes I had said five seasons. I had sort of thought it could be five seasons, but four actually felt pretty good. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and it's out there. It's all out now. People. Can yeah, it's on Hulu. It. It's, it's on all on Hulu. Hulu. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, right. and also the end. I, I would say too the, the other thing is like the ending that I had in mind the day that I pitched the show was the ending that we ended up with. Oh, that's great. Which oh, that's was awesome. nice. Well, congrats. Yeah. Um, good. We'll pick up there in a minute. Yeah. I want to come back to talking about the stuff that we started out talking about, which is sort of tackling these big tentpole ish. IP that are now part of TV. Uh, there was a time when this was just movies, uh, but now it's TV and it's, you know, we're doing this crossover stuff and M Meredith and Chris, you guys are both tackling this stuff. Um, let's talk about John Wick and how you start to figure out the TV show that takes place in this world, because those movies are sharks, right? I don't know that those movies sustain a TV show. No. Uh, so how do you start to think about what is the TV show? And how did those conversations even start to happen with you? Well, you know, I had um, I had met Keanu a few years ago uh, on a project he was developing called John Rain. And um, we had developed, you know, me and my friend Mark Abrams, uh, who co-created this show with me, uh, were approached by Keanu and uh, got hired. And uh, and ultimately that that series uh you know we developed it for over two and a half years we had we were teed up for you know we had we now were in a place to make it and i think uh because of the timing of it all uh we were expecting it to go a lot faster and and it changed homes a couple of times so um and by that time john wick had really hit its stride and uh, i think keanu was uh looking at uh you know um different opportunities mm -hmm. that came out of that. So uh, it wasn't the right timing for John Rain, but we kept the relationship going. And, um, you know, uh, I've 
developed now three projects with Keanu and uh, and he introduced me to the directors of John Wick, uh, Chad Stahelski and uh, and Chad and I uh, uh, wound up doing four projects together. Oh wow! And uh, so okay. um, that's how sort of and then Lionsgate, uh, you know, I had met them on a show called Crash and uh, and then you know we just we had been trying to find a project together and and hadn't and then. Finally, when the Continental came up, um, you know, they just said, you know, please tell Chris to come in. So I did, and, and let us convince him. And uh, so was it sort did. of cooked up in house at Lionsgate? Well, the, they, they know that party. they they knew that they wanted to do a series. Okay. Outside, and and you know, the state of the business is that. I mean, a lot yeah. of uh, studios are digging into their you know their catalog and saying what you know can we do this movie now as a tv show i mean they're all doing that they're trying to you know Absolutely. squeeze the blood from the stone so um in terms of the john wick of it all um so it was a it was a perfect kind of situation where lionsgate and i had already been talking mm -hmm. i had already been working with uh, chad and uh, and keanu and um and then you know basil and wanick the producer of john wick was someone i hadn't worked with mm -hmm. But we met and uh, talked, and uh, it just sounded like you know what you know. The movies are about a solitary character that's very internal. He's a he's a remote, distant guy. Uh, so how do we build a TV show around a character? Uh, so we had to look at the world that mm -hmm. that character occupied, and uh, and ultimately the Continental Hotel felt like a character on its own, mm -hmm. and uh, and ultimately um, sort of a point at which. Uh, we could dig into this fine mind story, have an upstairs downstairs dynamic. You know, upstairs is management, downstairs is the employees, the assassins, all that stuff. So we can contain it in the set, uh, most of it, and then ultimately uh, start to get to know the people that we don't have time to get to know in the movies, the sommelier, the you know, the doctor, the, all these other cool characters of that world yeah. that didn't have their their moment on the screen. So, and then how do you start to? thread that as you're working on wick three also uh well so i'm not the continental won't be uh the continental continental you see in the movies mm -hmm. it's going to be based in la okay so uh, it's going to have you know new york is more masculine it's leather tobacco it's smoky uh, la to me is more feminine uh it's fun it's sunshine it's flash and uh so i you know, in working with the producers in the studio, uh, uh, made a decision to uh, create a show around women uh, mm -hmm. for the for this section of the world, and um, and right now it's going really well. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the process and sort of putting together a room for that? Sure. Uh, so you know, developing with different. Uh, Studios network, it's all different, right? So Stars uh, is doing this thing where they open up mini rooms, yeah. and they, they which kinda, a lot of the the cable networks are doing. Yeah, days. so I think it's money wise, it's it costs less for mm -hmm. them. Uh, you can get a lot more work done. You can actually uh, you can go down the road and see if there's a show there. I, I feel like I hear that word so much, and it, it's meant different things in different contexts for me. So which one? Mini work, mini rooms. Uh, mini room. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's usually like limited number of people, limited number of weeks. But like, what is it in this context? Well, in this context, they. Can came to me and asked me for a Bible before uh -huh. I even wrote the pilot or anything, right? Yeah. They, they, they basically before the pilot. Yeah, mm. so this uh, this is a huge franchise for Lionsgate mm. and and stars and and uh, so there was very little room to uh, for mistakes here and um, 
So ultimately, uh, once we pitched the show and started talk, having the conversations about uh, the world and the characters and the narrative, uh, you know, uh, they decided, I guess, they decided that uh, they wanted to see a little more. Mm. So in that sense, they, they ordered a Bible. Mm -hmm. Bible is a really intensive thing. There's a Bible, mm -hmm. which you spell out every beat of every episode, uh, the characters, the world, uh, versus a format document, which is a very condensed version of that. You still tell the, the arcs of the characters, but, but a handful of characters, mm -hmm. the major Uber arcs. So, but even like deal making wise, how do you hire people for that? Are they commenced on the Bible or like how does well, that? So what yeah. they'll do is, uh, you know, if I'm interested in, in writers, right? Yeah. If I want to hire this table right here, so yeah. I'd say, you could okay, me room, <laughs> let's uh, let's put together. These are writers I'm interested in. Uh -huh. So they would they went out and made deals with these uh, with uh, I'm gonna name drop them right now: yeah. Alex Minahan, Chris Wu, Joanna Nadler, Aaron Lamb. They went out and made. Uh, uh, deals with them for the mini room, but then had options, pickup options right. for the room. So, you know, the mini, the time between the mini room and the real room, uh, you know, we, we want, we don't want to lose those writers. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and it's presuming too, that something like this is going to go to. A yeah. Real so we've been told, um, that we're going to have a room this year. Great. We're going to be shooting next year. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've been told uh, that we're making this. So, uh, but you know, as so, as so we all know, it's yeah. nothing is guaranteed until we're making it. Um, uh, so, I want to. I just want to ask two quick things. Uh, One is um, where you found these writers, because I think that's actually a great uh, story. Okay. All right. So, I um, you know, I've been doing this for a while now. Uh, this is my 14th year uh, professionally as a writer, and um, in the WGA, and uh, so I've had a lot of experiences in different rooms, high level rooms, and and uh, and ultimately what I and to. To go back to something Meredith said earlier that that she that I forgot to say, which was uh, you know hunger is uh, the key element to this game. Mm -hmm. If you're not hungry, you're not going to get fed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so ultimately, um, what George Pelicanos did say to me in that in that room was, uh, "You got to be more hungry." You know, and uh, so then I was camped up David Simon's ass for the rest of the season, asking him <laughs> for scripts and jobs and everything else. And then, mm -hmm. so, um, but what I, uh, what I, to, to go back to your question, which is I've worked in a lot of rooms, high level writers where uh, uh, that hunger had dissipated a little bit for me. And, uh, and I'm sitting there with a room full of writers and I'm, I'm just looking for that hunger, right? Mm -hmm. And I found it in three assistants uh, in Mana High Castle. And, uh, and they stepped up in ways uh, I had never seen assistants step, step up That's before. Great. And uh, so uh, I hired three assistants from Mana High Castle. And just For their first staff, staff writer. Staff writers. That's awesome. So awesome. So I have, a, I have a room right now that's three staff writers and one co-producer. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, and, and it, it's your assumption that you're gonna they're gonna lean heavy, heavily on you for drafts, but generate a lot of material, or is it like they're strong draft writers, or like how does right? It... Well, that's a great question. I mean, in a room, as as you all know, yeah. uh, you know, people slot in in different positions. Yeah. Uh, there mm -hmm. might be a person that's great in the room at the table, but not so great on script, yeah. uh, and vice versa. You might have a super quiet person in the room that kills, kills it on the script. Yeah, yeah it just writes mm -hmm. that script you wish you wrote. You mm -hmm. know. Uh, or even just gives you a clean, clean start to rewrite. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's even like I feel like it's totally functionally the person.
person that's like, I didn't put a lot of myself in this, yeah. but it is laid out for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. 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 If it's something right I can yeah. work off, is totally. structure there, is yeah. the character voice, all that stuff. Clean, yeah. yep. Good ideas. Because like, even technically, like the blueprint's good for production. Like yeah. things are capitalized. It does. I'm serious. There's nothing more exciting <laughs> moment for me than reading a script where the script takes a turn I didn't expect it to. So, uh-huh. um, uh, so. You know, in terms of these guys, they just, uh, you know, they demonstrated that uh, I could trust them in the room. I could walk out of the room. I can walk back in and there's going to be five new ideas there that Great. weren't there when I left. Yeah. And uh, and ultimately, they try, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, they they take every They're hungry. They, yeah. they, you know, they'll kill for you in, in certain <laughs> ways. So um, that's, to me, that's more helpful than sitting around a table going, where's lunch? Uh, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was yeah. my other yeah. question too. I mean, Meredith, you're you're running uh, a room now. What is your expectation of the writers, especially again on this thing where you have ten episodes? This is a, a potentially big franchise. It's certainly mm-hmm. something that other networks have tried uh, to take a swing at. Uh, this is on lock and key. Yeah, it's a very unique situation because this has been the show is they've tried to do twice before. Yeah. So which let me interrupt for a sec yeah. that anyone uh, who is interested in the backstory, I think it was our it's it, one of the first 10 episodes of this podcast was with Josh Friedman oh, as wow. he was just coming off of. I have to listen to that. Situation. I haven't listened to that yeah, episode yeah. yet. Yeah, they tried it at uh, Fox. I don't know. It was like maybe seven years ago. Yeah. I can't forget. Uh, shot a pilot. Um, last year at Hulu, they shot a pilot. They had a room that generated seven scripts. Um, they were about to go into production on episode two, and there was a change in leadership at Hulu, and the new guy wasn't interested in making the show. So um, Carlton Cuse uh, took the show out to uh, certain pla- different places, mm-hmm. and Netflix um, bought it, and so now we're making it for Netflix. Right. And uh, I was brought in after all of this, so I, I like to say that like I showed up to this party that a lot of people had already spent a lot of time planning, and I kind of get to show up just when it starts. <laughs> and be like, you know what? Maybe we should change the streamer color from red to yellow and maybe move that table over here. Yeah. And it's actually, it's kind of, it's nice to have fresh eyes, I think, on the project. I think they really appreciate that. And also, I did not read the comic books growing Like, I, mm-hmm. when it's this good. job came up, mm-hmm. I read all six and absolutely love them. But I'm not, you know, I, I'm not someone who grew up with it in the same way right. that some a lot of people did. Um, and we have a mixture of that sort of in the room of people who have, have always been fans of the comics and people who just came to it when the show came up. But what's really unique in the room and what we spent the first two weeks doing is looking at all of this material. Hmm. And all of the writers watched both the Fox pilot and the Hulu oh, pilot. Really? Yeah. That's so funny because we actually yeah. banned our first pilot. Like really? we didn't let anybody see it because we, we didn't want anybody to, yeah. to, to, to be. I know it's, yeah. we, we debated so, it. I'm curious to hear yeah. about the reasons for both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it was because I wanted to hear from the writers and I wanted them to be very honest about like what worked for you and what didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think there's so there's a lot of lessons in that. And we are making our very own show like it's going to have a brand new director, brand new production designer. It's going to have all of the brand new key hires. So it is going to feel very, very different. But I just like hearing what people liked and what people didn't. And mm-hmm. we did, of course, the same for the for the books. Um, and 
it's it's just generated a lot of really great ideas. And just to hear, I think there's just as much lesson to learn in what people didn't like as there is what people did. Mm-hmm. And how can we avoid the reasons why we feel like this mm-hmm. wasn't really working? Um, so that's been really helpful. And also just, you know, being able to make it more about the emotional journeys of these characters. It's about a family whose father has been murdered. And so these young kids and the mother are sort of grieving that while moving into a new house that's filled with all of these magical keys that let them do all these magical Mm -hmm. things. And it's really a show about grief. And it's the question is, how do you make that fun and uh, and wonderful and exciting and fantasy? And we like to call it fucked up Harry Potter, which is basically <laughs> what the show is. Um, but also just the different ways in which grief manifests. And that isn't always like crying into your pillow. And what are the different stories we can tell about that that also don't make you sad? Mm-hmm. And it's OK if it does go there and it's going to. But also like being on this journey with these characters, getting them to a place where they're grieving their father and learning about who he was and ultimately trying to not make the same mistakes that he did. And Mm -hmm. that's the whole show. And once we sort of honed into that, just like that, just emotional piece, like the keys and all of the like fun fantasy is sort of the exciting layer on top, but it doesn't drive the story. Those are ornaments. And I do think that in some of the f- other iterations, sometimes the fantasy and the the set pieces mm-hmm. drove the drama more than I think that we want to. Like, and I think that's an yeah. easy trap for a lot of writers yeah. to get into. Yeah. Is all these other pieces are so much fun, yeah. right? But something I've been hearing a lot from creators uh, in, in many media is... What's the thesis of this show? What's what at its core? Yeah. What it's was it? What is it about? Um, in Unreal, did you have that? Did you find that core idea? And was it something that you and the writers were able to stick to? Yeah, I think it was actually really helpful having the short for that reason because the mm-hmm. short was about that idea, and the short was sort of about the idea. Sorry, the short was about the idea in a young person's life when they sort of realize that they've sold their soul for a paycheck. Um, And that was a really good jumping off point of like the whole show was the battle for the main character's soul. Hmm. And it was kind of just about her wrestling with herself and and deciding if she could accept herself. And like I said, that was why I think it gave the series a nice um, set of bookends and a a nice finite feel to it. Um, But what I really found with having the short when I was selling the show um, was that I had experiences throughout my career in all different in all different ways of knowing that in meetings, people like to feel good and they like to agree. And it feels really, and it feels really, really good when you're in the room to be like, totally. Yes. Gotcha. Like on the same page, blah, blah, blah. And then just have had the experience over and over again of like, when you go to shoot something or when you go to direct something and you think, you know what everybody thinks you were making and then you make something kind of different and then people are really upset. So the nice thing about selling a show with a proof of concept like the short um, was that I was pretty sure that everybody was talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like it was really about yeah. it was like because the short film is is basically it's a scene that I ended up putting into the pilot. And it's just this like struggle between a producer on a reality show and a contestant on a reality show. And the producer is a feminist who ends up like mentally torturing this this contestant until she has a nervous breakdown on camera. So that so it was really just about this person becoming a, a spiritual monster. And I would say that it was invaluable to know that that was what the show was about, because our show in particular, um, I always call them like the sparkly jelly beans that everybody who came onto the show 
had a moment of getting super distracted by like how mm-hmm. like broad and hilarious things could be. Mm-hmm. And it was so hard to say like, no, the show's actually about the crappy donuts on the table at craft <laughs> service. It's not about yeah. the girls in evening gowns. <laughs> and because like reality television is really broad and it's super easy to write. So it was like, so yeah. like people would just get obsessed with like writing jokes for the host or being like, now they're, they're throwing mm-hmm. mud and the tits are out. And it's like, totally. What's the story? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, so I, so that was, especially with directors coming onto the show, it was so interesting um, just visually because their eyes go to the fancy like fun stuff and it was so hard to be like turn the camera around look at this horrible like this horrible setup on our video village like cart of like <laughs> literal like used Kleenex like vi- uh, emergency cold medication like yeah. shitty walkies like that's our world yeah. and that's where the story is happening that's great yeah um, Chris on all these shows you've worked on I mean it feels like coming out of the Wire, where mm-hmm. I think it feels like David Simon is very clear about this is what this show is about. Mm-hmm. Is that a lesson that you took? And was it something that you got from other experiences as well? Was it always that uh, clear? I, I'm still trying to figure that part out. Yeah. Um, no, I, um, you know, what, uh, you know, for me, it depends on the project, you know, uh, for David, the, the wire is very personal. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, he camped out on a street corner for a long time and uh, and was a crime reporter. So, you know, he's he saw something that was devastating his city and 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 he got angry about it and and ultimately uh, decided to to write about it. You know, um for me, I have a vast uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say vast. I I have a dozen check boxes, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the type of project it is. Is it something that, that's personal to me. Is it something that is it based on someone else's? Where uh, is it an IP? So for me, those are those are the questions that I have to, you know, am I getting involved in a in a project that's already been established? The Continental being a perfect example of that. Derek Kolstad, original writer of the films, established that world. He created right. it. It's his. You know, I'm so just how do you find your way in on, say on something like that? Well, you know, you have to uh, you have to fight for it. Um, you know, it's not just coming in and saying, uh, you know, for me as a writer, I don't want to come in and just like mimic someone else's mm-hmm. voice. If, mm-hmm. if I'm creating a show, if I'm staffing on something, sure. You know, I'm going right. to, I'm going to get on Sarah's show and I'm going to write it like she does, you yeah. know? Uh, but if I'm, if it's I'm my like, show, cool. I'll call you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I would love uh, to see your episode of Unreal. But, um, but you know, so that's a, that's a starting point. Um, what you put into it, uh, what, you know, if I feel like I can benefit the show, if I feel like I can bring a fresh perspective to it, like the Continental for me felt like that's in my wheelhouse. Uh, I love the the properties. Mm-hmm. I love the world. I love the people involved. So for me, I was like, how do I establish my own piece of this world mm-hmm. and my tone? Because it's got a really established tone. Right. And anyone that watches the films will immediately say, well, that's, different tone from the movies right. and and then you have to say well i'm not writing the movie right mm. I'm, I'm creating a new part of this world that doesn't actually exist yet so it's going to be it's going to have a new tone to it that's uh, so hard that's exactly which, yeah. what i'm grappling with too because this graphic novel series has like a huge fan base and i want to be respectful of them but also be mindful of the fact that we're creating something new and that's what people are showing up for too. Yeah. Um, and there's also people who aren't familiar with the series that are showing up. So I want to, you know, I want to think about them too. But it is hard to find that line between like wanting to create something that I that yeah. I, just feels new to me and also be 
beholden, not beholden to, but respectful of right. what existed before. Well, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. And, for, you know, you're asking a writer, okay, not to just write a movie and step away from it and go do something else. Mm. You're asking a writer to actually create a show and then stick with that show for a number of years. Mm. Uh, that might wind up being five years of their mm -hmm. life, seven years of their life. I have to remain engaged in that process for five or seven years. That's the commitment I'm making. Mm -hmm. I'm going to walk into that show and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And But being a collaborative person, mm -hmm. I'm also going to give you what you want. But we got to find that balance, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So the new tone, the old tone, we got to find the, mm -hmm. the middle balance of that where everyone can kind of be happy in this situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've gotten a person read a couple of big pieces of IP and found the process really confusing just like from what I'm coming off of, which was so personal and just creating 100% mm -hmm. the world that I had in my mind. Yeah. Um, and the only way that I could approach it, which was not ultimately, I actually ended up sort of passing on both the projects because it just didn't feel like I could get free enough to do it. Hmm. And it was like the only thing I can really carry over is the title. If you guys find a lot of value on the title, I kind of got to yeah. start over. And I think that it's like fascinating and and really useful to hear people talk about successfully working from IP because for mm -hmm. me, it's it's such a different thing, and especially when it's a really well-loved and well-known franchise, you know? Yeah. 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 You have to extract, you, gotta, you yeah. have to learn how to extrapolate. So, you know, mm -hmm. even like working with a set of books, like mm -hmm. let's say there's seven books in a series, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I was in a situation with Mark Abrams where we had to look at those books and say, you know what, for the first season, we got to combine books one, two, and eight together. <laughs> that's the first season, one, yeah. two, and eight. Yeah. You know, that's going to give us a season yep. of TV. Yeah. And uh, so it's, you know, it's a... Uh, it I also think math. I think writing past the book is really interesting. I'm in a situation yeah, like that right yeah, now. Yeah. And that also just feels like, you know what, if we're going to actually hit our stride, like I got to own this pretty hard. Yeah. Cause it's you like, if, if, the, if the episodes yeah. are going to feel like the same person wrote them, like if we're going to write past the book, then mm -hmm. we're going to need right. to. And yeah. the, Meredith, you were mentioning this for, for uh, lock and key is like, it has to at a certain point become its own yeah. creature. Right? Yeah. 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 Cause it's only six books. Yeah. So yeah. it, and you know, we have the, plan to stretch out those six books for three seasons, but there's a lot of stuff in the middle there. And then there's a lot, a lot of things that we're changing mm -hmm. simply because anyone can just read the graphic novel, know right. what's going to happen. And you, I, I love reveals and surprises. And so a lot of the sort of bigger tent poles that are in the books, we're changing a little bit. I mean, not, you know, maybe it's like 45 degrees, mm -hmm. but it, we still think that we are keeping true to what the the, the, what the book is and Joe Hill's vision for yeah. it, for sure. That's that's interesting because uh, I, you know, you have to, you can't let the audience get ahead of the story. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think that's very smart mm -hmm. to to make those kinds of adjustments that surprise people. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. audiences are learning how to watch those things too. Yeah. Like I think um, Handmaid's Tale did that really yeah. well. I think mm -hmm. Castle Rock is sort of the best example of teaching people how it can feel like this thing that you love, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you, you're not going to be ahead of it. You're not yeah, going yeah, to, exactly. it's not going to be a one for one translation. Yeah. Um, I want to ask all of you very briefly as we have to start to wrap up um, about sort of put, this is sort of a big question, but I think you're all in the middle of it or, or even on Unreal, you've just finished it. Um, planning ahead. You know, you're, Chris, you're putting together this Bible for a series and it's a detailed Bible and Meredith, you're doing the same thing and you're in the room and you're writing all the episodes before you guys go to shoot. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to say when you were on the good wife, where I imagine it ran like a sort of typical network show mm -hmm. and you were just a few ahead, yeah. um, doing all of this planning, doing all of this breaking of story ahead, 
how does it work? How does it work with your room? What are you know? What do you walk in with? What do you expect from your writers? Um, anything you want to talk about as far as plotting ten episodes, twelve episodes, even you know, just putting together the vinyl. Mm-hmm. Well, we spent the first three weeks, you know, with the putting one through ten up on the board and sort of the temples that we knew that we wanted, kind of slotting in, mm-hmm. knowing what we were going to be building towards. And now as we're starting to break the episodes, right now we're starting to break episode three. Um, it'll Honestly, it allows for a lot less anxiety for me to know that we have a plan. I'm a planner in my personal <laughs> life. I'm a planner in my professional life. Having a plan, even if we change it, just makes me feel good. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to allow, though, for discovery along the way. Like You cannot be mm-hmm. beholden to, well, we said that Sam Lesser was going to come back in episode seven, so we, that's what we have to do. It's like, no, well, actually, it's starting to feel like maybe we want to move that up or maybe mm-hmm. we want to push it back. Um, and allowing for people to have the freedom to to discover that along the way. But I think having those tent poles in mind as you're going into each break is just so helpful. Having been on shows where we didn't have as much of a plan. Mm-hmm. And then it also helps people understand like what the show is and what the pace of the show is, mm-hmm. I think, for the writers. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of what we've been, that's what we've been doing on Lock and Key. Yeah, and, and also Netflix, um, they, when Carlton went in and pitched the show to them, they really like to know what's season yeah. two, what's season three. So you, you have to have that in mind as well. And they're also very open to if things change, but they like the security of knowing that you have that vision mm-hmm. and that this show has legs beyond a first season. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, uh, we, you know, we touched on it before, but in putting together this enormous detailed Bible, you know, you have these mm-hmm. five writers. What are you looking for from them? Uh, I'm looking for ideas mm-hmm. and uh, that's why they're there. And, um, so when, you know, in a Bible process, you're, you're ultimately just laying down a season. So, um, you know, I'm looking for them to keep track of story. Does this connect if we lose something? Uh, you know, uh, I'll come in, uh, I, I typically will come in with my big ideas. This is what I want in terms of this, is where I want to start, this is where I want to end. And, uh, I want to kill someone here, major, uh, or I want something really bad to happen here, mid-season finale. What's you know how we're gonna structure the second half of the season? So these are all questions that they they digest and then help me with. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we'll do is um, you know we'll we work with cards. Uh, we used to work with whiteboards, but we switch over to cards now. Why did you switch over to cards? Because uh, cards real technical. All right. Well, <laughs> but I'm always. I'm so, I'm so about a card. I'm yeah. so about a magnetic card. whiteboard. Magnetic tiles. whiteboard yeah. tiles that that's, you cut into cards. That's the best. Really? Life changing. Really it really uh, gonna, is life changing. I'm gonna have to look into yeah. that because yes. I went from uh, magnetic. <laughs> you just cut them. Yeah. <laughs> I went from cards to whiteboards to uh, I actually then went to uh, just getting a giant like 16 inch TV mm-hmm. and oh having gosh. some. An assistant, like, or someone like that. type, yeah. and letting the whole room see it on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I've reverted back to cards because I feel like those are compared to a whiteboard where you have to write out everything, sure. and then let's just say you forget a beat or you want to add a beat right. into this massive word. 
and the, and the studio's gonna fight you on it because magnetic boards are really expensive. Right? But you you have to. Yeah. Okay. It'll change. It's it'll change your life. Yeah. It's good to know. So really, it's just about moving yeah, things around. Yeah. Cards, you, you're, you can move it around, get rid of yeah. it, add yeah. a new place. So it's all about the ease of uh, getting those sure. ideas into little nuggets on the board. Yeah. You know. Um, and it sounds like you're getting from these writers who I imagine are so eager, like they're finally getting their voices out there yeah. that you're you're going to get a ton of ideas and then it's just about sifting through and what works for this well, show. Well, yeah, and, and it's, you know, I, I, I tend to do things democratically. Um, you know, if there's a idea on the table and the room's split about it, uh, we'll go around and say, why do you like it? Why mm -hmm. don't you, you know, mm -hmm. and ultimately the, the yays will... <laughs> I'll, I'll reserve the final call, sure. but uh, but it's helpful to. But I listen to my room, yeah, and I learned that uh, from my first job, uh, David Simon on the Water. I watched him. Uh, you know, he did a draft of a script, and uh, he and then he'd ask for notes from everybody, all the writers. Right? Mm -hmm. That's we, great. We, it could be three in the morning. We did that too. Yeah. So I, I've I've I gotten like drafts at midnight, and mm -hmm. I'd have to, you know do work until three or four in the morning yeah. turn around notes. And well, uh, that sounds terrible. But he takes all those notes and then he says, you know, he gets the same note from two or three sure. different people. He knows he has to take that note. Um, so I've I've picked up those good habits yeah. uh, and, and listening to other people in the room. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and then Sarah, very quickly, it feels like you had a good notion of what your first season was. I really did. I was going to say that was so helpful. Um, and, and I think the other thing that was always just ha like so important to me at the beginning of every se season even when Stacy was running we would meet before we would go in I mean mm -hmm. like for for three and four we would have sort of like a mini room I would say sort of what I wanted to say with the season we would I, I usually came up with a bunch of characters and sort of arcs and then we would start beating that out and come into the room with quite a point of view about what the season was about. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing with the first season that was so helpful is that I really understood where we were going. It was a season about the princess fantasy, and I think yeah. it actually could have been like a two-hour movie. You know what I mean? Like it had it had a beginning, middle, and end in a really strong way mm -hmm. that this girl comes back to a job she doesn't want to be at. She ends up falling for her own bullshit. She goes down the rabbit hole, and then she gets revenge. And then she's back in on her life. Right. Um, and the thing that we did from a very practical standpoint, a lot of times I would come into the room sort of fresh-eyed, and people would be super attached to beats and super attached to stuff that they had been cracking up over and all this stuff. And I would be like, none of it's actually moving our protagonist towards her goal. I don't know what her obstacle is, and I've forgotten what she wants. And so I would actually just go through on like a legal pad and just say, well, you guys just explain to me what Rachel wants. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's so human and so normal. And when I'm in there day in and day out, it happens too. Sure. But it's like, well, she kind of wants this, she kind of wants that. And everybody's saying something <laughs> different. And like, because we had laid out exactly what this, what this season was about and exactly what she wanted when she was going to be closer to it and farther from it and what her obstacles were, it was just always stripping back to the basics. Yeah. And it was really helpful to just say, this is the, this is what the show is about. This is who the show is about. And it, and the couple is Quinn and Rachel and let's just go. Yeah. That's really, that's yeah. really smart, really valuable way to do it um, yeah all right we yeah. do need to wrap up um i want to hear before we do about what you are watching on television these days what is getting you excited or inspired what are you talking about with your rooms your loved ones uh chris let's start with you uh i'm a, a huge game of thrones fan period that's it uh i did just watch you stuck with it uh yes do you know all the characters names no um <laughs> But I also just uh, watched John Adams. For mm, the first God, time. it's so good. That yeah, was good. 
It is good. I haven't watched it. I feel like jealous that you got to watch it for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I've been on this big Hamilton thing. uh, So, of course, I had to just find shows that would bring that to life, that world. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, Meredith, what are you watching? Uh, I'm loving this show called Get Shorty. That is on Epics, which no one seems I to have. It's good though. It's, I've heard it's good. It's too. so yeah. excellent, and it makes me so bummed that it happens to be on a network that is seems t- to be very <laughs> difficult to get. I don't, I am, have Directv, and I literally think I can't get it, even if I wanted to. <laughs> so I have had to buy the episodes on Amazon. But the second season just premiered, but I can't get them until later this year. <laughs> My a guy I worked with on a show uh, called Happy Town, Davy Holmes, created yes. Get Shorty, and I like didn't remember the movie at all. You don't have to have watched the movie. You don't have to have even liked it. But it's such a great show. Like it's emotional. It's surprising. It's funny like it's just great plotting and i just hope that a lot of people find it because truly i think that if it were on like an amc it would just it would be just as lauded as a better call Saul. i mean it's really it's just it's up there with that and so everyone find gets shorty the the ads run during baseball Mm. yeah and so we keep saying they're trying epics is really trying they They got billboards they got billboards all over it's just hard to find but you can buy it on amazon right now the first season and i so i highly recommend Good. Worth checking out. Yeah. Thanks. Sarah, what are you watching? Um, I'm an early adopter and total unapologetic super fan of Succession. I know it got yeah. like it got a lot of blowback and I was like, it? I, yeah, it did. It was like and it was very unpopular when I brought it up in meetings. People were like, ooh. And I was like, it's fucking great. No, people like, love, it, people it, love the show. Yeah, I, I think it, t- either, it yeah. took a minute, but I think but like now I think yeah. there are a lot, I got a lot of like unreal like alum. Everybody's sort of texting about it and watching it. Um, I think it's great. There's also a show called House of Flowers, which is from Mexico on Netflix. It's I keep like seeing the ad for that. It's too. actually kind of amazing. And the thing that's sort of lingered in my head and and kept me going is Wild Wild Country. Oh yeah. yeah. I just thought it's it was great. like so <laughs> remarkably structured and so fucking interesting. And yeah. I it really filled me up. That was great. All good recommendations. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys. Except mm-hmm. for Game of Thrones. Thank you guys <laughs> so Thanks, much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the writers panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog Podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.